It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, just a small subject how information defines all living things. In other words, the meaning of consciousness. I often say there are three great origin questions, origin of the universe, origin of life, and origin of consciousness. The origin of consciousness, we don't even know how to frame the problem. And order, order! Why being heard in the House of Commons is not always essential to getting things done. I think critically, it's quite interesting the fact that the building hadn't been designed as a debating chamber. It's not really ideal for those kind of experiences. But first, 66 million years ago, a huge asteroid hit the Earth. It wiped out three quarters of all species, and it was thought that this included the dinosaurs. But this has never been conclusively proven, at least until recently when a young paleontologist made a remarkable discovery. Digging at a site at the Hell Creek Formation in North Dakota, Robert De Palma came upon some dinosaur fossils. It wasn't new to find fossils in the region, but to prove that they were from the same geological age as the asteroid certainly was. Robert De Palma is an adjunct professor at Florida Atlantic University, and he added a very substantial piece to the puzzle of dinosaur extinction. And he joins me now on the line. Hello, Robert. Hello, Ken. How are you? I'm great. You must be great as well. You seem to have uncovered and unlocked a huge mystery of science. Describe it to me. What have you done? The entire process of paleontology revolves around putting together the past, and this is just uh, one additional piece to that larger puzzle. The interesting thing about this particular discovery is that it relates to the asteroid impact that ended the Cretaceous and led to the demise of the dinosaurs and 75% of the uh, diversity on Earth. So that is something that really strikes home for most paleontologists and the detail that this site contains. So how did you do this? Well, operating based on a tip from a local collector, we located a site that had many different fish that were poking out of the ground, which were rare in and of themselves, because until then only a handful had ever been found in the Hell Creek Formation. So we knew that it was a very interesting site. But as things progressed, certain details came out about the interesting sedimentology there, as well as some other debris that was found at the site that pointed to the fact that it very well could have been associated with this impact event. And in going through these details, we're actually able to put together a clearer idea of what occurred in the first hours after impact, uh, which is very, very interesting to us. So what was the Chichalub event? The Chichalub event was one of the most profound asteroid impacts in the history of Earth. And that was an event that occurred 66 million years ago. And an asteroid about the size of Mount Everest slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula, essentially punching into the Earth 
and then obliterating both the ground that it hit and the asteroid itself. And occurring right after, you had a raining curtain of debris that came down near the impact site, but also that continued around the entire world, leading to the formation of a well-defined layer called the KT Boundary Clay, which is composed of fine-grained fallout from this impact. So essentially, one single event, a punch to the Yucatan Peninsula, was able to affect ecologies around the entire world. And it ultimately led to the third greatest extinction on the planet. What is it that you see in the fossils? What happened right after the impact? So basically what we're seeing is that uh, when we have the arrival of seismic waves from the impact site in North Dakota, we are seeing what appears to be an excitation of the water bodies there and the generation of massive inundations by those seismic waves. So those inundations would have tumbled and buried essentially anything in their path, and they would have occurred before any other effect of the Chichilub impact would have reached those regions. So it essentially would have been the very first bloody nose caused by the impact in those areas. Now describe the evidence that you uncovered. What is it that leads you to believe that this was indeed uncovered in the first hours of impact? Well, first, around the entire world, there is preserved a clay layer uh, called the KT Boundary Clay Layer that is composed of debris from the impact that settled down through the atmosphere. It's a very clear line, and it's preserved in many localities worldwide. That KT Boundary Clay Layer caps this particular site. So that is essentially your seal for the site. You know that it was deposited right before that fallout came down. In addition, the site itself, the muddy deposit of the site, contains very rare but very clear examples of impact ejecta, such as glassy ejecta spherules and other debris that was generated by the impact. Now, geochemical fingerprinting of this debris connected that with the Chichilub impact specifically, and geochronological dating of the impact glass from this gave us the date that matched with the Chichilub impact. So we are very confident that all these overlapping lines of evidence point to Chichilub as being the impact that we're uh, seeing here. And why now? Why is it that you were able to uncover this fossil today and that it wasn't uncovered, say, 50 or 100 years ago? The interesting thing about these discoveries on these fossils is a lot of times the depositional environments are somewhat rare, and it's a perfect storm kind of a scenario. In this case, the areas that would have been most affected in the study region are largely obliterated by erosion. So there's no evidence for that time period of the seaway, and there's no evidence in the geologic record for most of the coastal regions of that time, just a little bit farther inland from that. So the areas that would have been most affected by this from that time period are unfortunately not preserved any longer in the geologic record. So incompleteness of the geologic record is sort of an enemy of paleontologists, and we have to work around that. So this is incredible. What is the implication of the finding? Is this the missing piece of the puzzle to show or prove the mass extinction theory, or does it do something else? I always look at these sorts of studies as one additional piece to add to the greater fabric of the story that so many other scientists have worked so hard over the years to contribute to. So we're basically just providing one additional piece to that whole story. And in this case, this particular site gives us essentially a minute-by-minute -minute view of what occurred right after the impact 
and it gives us a view of what organisms were around at that time. So essentially, it aids in us understanding how the impact affected ecologies, not just the extinction, but how it affected those ecologies. And that's critical to understanding how current or possibly future natural hazards will affect world ecologies and help us to mitigate those damages to the ecology. So this actually has a very here and now aspect to it in aiding in us being custodians of our planet in real time. That's really neat. Robert De Palma, thank you very much. Absolutely. And you can read more about the story in an upcoming edition of The Economist. If you like our journalism, try a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radiooffer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, what's the distinctive factor between things that are alive and things that aren't? Our next guest is a physicist and a professor at Arizona State University, Paul Davies. He tackles the question in his new book, The Demon in the Machine. And the answer may even help us understand what we mean by consciousness, as Professor Davies explains in conversation with our science editor, Jeffrey Carr. If you ask a biologist, what is life? Uh, You'll get an answer in terms of things like coded instructions. Your DNA is packed full of them. Signals between cells, networks of genes that process information and act upon it. You've got sensory apparatus that uh, gets information. You've got our brain, this thing between our ears, which is processing information. So to a biologist, life is all about information. But ask a physicist and you'll get a story in terms of molecular shapes and binding energies and forces and entropy and energy and all those lovely physics type things. So we've got twin narratives. Mm -hmm. And We might think, well, that's okay. These are complementary descriptions of the same subject matter. But at some point, they've got to join. And if, like me, you are a physicist, you look at the level of atoms, and sure, it's just known physics. You look at a cell, and it looks like magic. So what's the source of that magic? How does that come into existence? And clearly, it has something to do with the way information and matter couple to each other. Wouldn't it be the coupling of matter and energy creating information? Now, nobody would doubt that we have energy flowing through our bodies. We have information flowing through it as well. And the relationship between matter, energy, and information is now well understood. It's part of the subject of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And this is a subject that has a deep history because if you want information to have leverage over matter, to make a difference in the world, to do stuff, then it's a little bit like the hardware-software dichotomy of computing. Computers need hardware, but they need the appropriate software. And you have to understand how they fit together. So the point is that information is a type of fuel. It can Mm -hmm. be used to uh, do work. And it's not very exciting except on a nanoscale Mm -hmm. because uh, this is what we're talking about here. But life operates on a nanoscale. Life is full of little molecular machines. We're about a Mm -hmm. nanometer in size, uh, playing the margins of the second law of thermodynamics and gaining an advantage. And there's a spectacular example, which is what's between our ears, our brain. This is an incredible information processing system. It's basically uh, as good as a megawatt supercomputer. It runs with the equivalent of a small light bulb Mm -hmm. energy expenditure. And it operates because the wires, if you like, the uh, axons that connect neurons together down which the signals flow, they're not like electrons flowing through copper bars. It's a tube with holes in the membrane 
and these holes are gated. Uh, so they have little Maxwell demons, if you like, that can mm. open and close the gates and let ions through. And so you have a sort of wave of ionic polarization in response to the neighboring environment. And what I w would like to be a pains mm. to point out is that, of course, life is invested in information uh, in a much more elaborate way than just playing the margins of thermodynamics. Yes, but this yes. is the little chink. No, that's what I wanted to go on, uh, go yes. on to. Do you think it is possible to have meaningful information that is abiotic, or is life a priori necessary? I mean, you, right. you could look at a computer and say, well, that's not a living thing, and it's not. Uh, but it was created by living things. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Now, you're using the M word. And, Am I? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, meaning, one? meaning, but justifiably so, because I think we all understand, if you ask a biologist... What is a gene? Mm. You'll be told, well, it's a set of instructions for a ribosome to build a protein. In other words, this is not just any old bits. This is very specific, functionally relevant bits of information, or meaningful, if you like. And then the question arises, meaningful to, to who or what? Mm. Well, it's meaningful to an entire molecular system that can act upon it and realize their functionality. Hmm. So it's a systems approach. So we will only really fully understand how information operates in biology by getting away from the notion that all physically relevant variables are localized on individual particles at a place and a particular hmm. time. We have to uh, generalize the notion of physical law to encompass this sort of systems approach or top-down causation. So the question is how such systems can come into existence. What is life is a very good question that goes back to you know, Schrodinger and people like that. So let me just say that Schrodinger, who famously asked what is life and wrote a book in 1944, he was open-minded enough to say that we must be prepared to find a new type of physical law prevailing in it, it being living matter. So not just a new law, but a new type of law. Mm -hmm. I think we now understand what that new type of law might be. And physicists' way of expressing it is that all the laws of physics that we know to date are fixed. Fixed laws, changing states. I think we need laws that are functions of the state. Now, that mm -hmm. you know, sounds all a bit mysterious, but let me give you an analogy. The game of chess proceeds according to fixed laws or fixed rules, and there are only a certain number of configurations on the chessboard that you can have. So there are certain states of play yeah. which are allowed. If you just put the bits at random, chances are that will not be a valid state of play. So now imagine something that I, in the book, called Chess Plus, right. uh, which is that you would allow changes of the rules according to who was winning. So, for example, supposing white is winning, then maybe mm. black can move pawns backwards as well as forwards. Okay. I mean, it's a sort of silly yes. suggestion, but you see what I'm, I'm driving what you mean. Yes, 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 yes. And then you would achieve states of the board would be impossible under any other circumstances. But this is a rule that looks at the global picture, the total state of play, and changes the local rules of the pieces. I think we need laws of physics okay. like that, and we've done some computer models of what would you get for such laws, but we found that, sure enough, you can get open-ended complexity. You get evolution and open-ended states. You can achieve states that could not be achieved by any fixed rules. And I think that's getting to the heart of that's, what's going on. That's here. certainly interesting. And d would it bear on the most mysterious question of all about biology, which is the nature of consciousness? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I often say there are three great origin questions, origin of the universe, origin of life, and origin of consciousness. I I'd think, agree with that, actually. I yes. think we've explained the origin of the universe quite well. Mm -hmm. The origin of life is, well, hot on the trail. I don't think we've explained it yet, but we know how to think about it. The origin of consciousness, we don't even know how to frame the problem. There is one thing that has given me a pause for thought, which is the work of 
uh, Giulio Tononi, we're just here really dealing with what type of physical system would have consciousness. Yeah. If you say my thermostat's conscious, and I'd say that's ridiculous, can we settle that by having a definition of consciousness based on the architecture of the information yes. flowing through it? And Tononi has this concept of integrated information. And again, an analogy I think is best at the level we're discussing this. Imagine that there's a committee that is going to decide on a prize or something like mm -hmm. that. If uh, all of the members of the committee just come along and then vote as they uh, see fit, then that's not very integrated. But if the committee bounces ideas backwards and forwards and people change their minds and they discuss and they reach a consensus, then that is integrated information. There's a flow of information going around and around the committee. And Tononi is suggesting that where you see feedback loops of that type in neural systems, yes. then that's associated with consciousness. You could put a measure on that. You could, in principle, have a consciousness meter, mm -hmm. yes. uh, and you might get five out of mm -hmm. ten or something. Of course, it's a proposal, and it may be that it's going to get shot down. But I think it's a heroic idea of how to try to bring some sort of quantitative measure to a field which is notoriously woolly otherwise. Professor Paul Davis, thank you. It's been a great discussion. Thank you. Finally, new research shows that it's not always essential to be heard in the House of Commons, the debating chamber in Britain's parliament that's always on the telly at the moment thanks to Brexit. 230 years ago, William Wilberforce, an MP, denounced slavery in the parliament and kick-started the abolitionist movement in Britain. Yet a new study suggests that MPs in the audience would not have been able to hear him properly. Dr. Katrina Cooper is a digital archaeologist at the University of York, and she used a computer model to recreate the acoustics of the 18th century commons, which was then housed in St. Stephen's Chapel. She joins me over the phone now. Hello, Dr. Cooper. Hello. So how did you recreate the audioscape that the parliamentarians would have heard? So I used the models created by the Virtual St. Stephen's project of the building in this time. That project gathered all the evidence for the structure of the House of Commons. So that was architectural plans, images, paintings, all from the very relevant period. And instead of creating a visual model focusing on how light would have been reflected around the space and the colours, instead this model programmes in things like the furnishings and fittings within the space, how sound is absorbed and scattered. And that allows us to kind of explore the acoustic properties of that space. So you can programme in where someone was sitting and where someone was speaking from and their specific experiences into that model. And what did you learn? We learned that it's actually a very, very reverberant space. And actually, the House of Commons that exists today is also very, very reverberant. So by that, I mean it's quite echoey. It's a big open space. So it's not actually that easy to give a speech or listen to a speech within it. When we think of the House of Commons today, we think of the experience we have of listening to debates via the radio or the TV. Uh, order, I think of people shouting. There will be an opportunity for other points of order, but the Prime Minister must and will be heard. Where the sound has been dampened to make it easier for us to hear. But actually, when you go into that space, it's a lot harder, especially when there's a lot of people in there moving around or possibly jostling for attention. And so what is the implication that it's so echoey and hard to hear? I think 
critically, it's quite interesting the fact that the building hadn't been designed as a debating chamber. And it's not really ideal for those kind of experiences, but it's a structure that we have continued to maintain for our House of Commons in the UK. So as you might know, the House of Commons that stands today is not the same one we're talking about in the 1780s. Actually, that building burnt down in 1834 and again was bombed out during the Blitz. But we've continued to maintain that structure because it gives quite an adversarial or aggressive form of politics. Um, and I think it's Winston Churchill has always encouraged the building to be rebuilt in that shape because it felt that it meant people really cared and really engaged strongly with their beliefs in that place. So if I was a parliamentarian listening to Wilberforce's speech, what would I have heard? On top of his, I mean, legendary oratorial skills and the speech he was giving, which was really very, very moving, in my opinion, or at least the recordings of it that we've recreated from newspaper transcripts and things like that. You'll also hear lots of background noise from other parliamentarians who didn't necessarily agree with him. You can really hear how they use the acoustic properties of the space to make it difficult for people to give speeches, um, as you might notice in Parliament today. That's great. Katrina Cooper, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's Babbage. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It matters a lot. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.